This is an interesting passage, to say the least. Um, Let's remind ourselves of the context. It was written by Paul to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church stood at the crossroads of many trading routes, up sort of in the Peloponnese, if any of you have holidayed in that part of Greece. But it was a church dogged with many, many issues. uh, And in some way, it reflected the culture from which it had emerged. And you'll recall that just prior to this passage in chapter 12, Paul had written about the role and the place of the Lord's Supper and the need for orderly worship. Now this passage that we've read today attracts a lot of reaction and they're kind of three A's for me. Uh, There's apathy, antagonism and applause. Uh, And I ask at the minute a rhetorical question, where do each one of us sit on that range of emotions regarding spiritual gifting? Let's just take a little cul-de-sac. How mission-minded are you here? Is it the thing that's your driving purpose? I'm not talking about sending missionaries out abroad. I'm talking about being salt and light here in the place you live and you work and you study and the villages you come from. Paul knows that a church enabled and equipped and gifted by the Holy Spirit, experimentally and experientially, is a supernaturally charged creation and an entity that changes men and women's lives forever. Now I think one of our problems when we look at spiritual gifts is that we focus sometimes on excesses that we've seen in certain places. You see, we confuse the gifts of the Spirit sometimes with being given only to mature people. That's, that's actually a faulty understanding in Scripture. It's quite apparent that God was pouring out his Holy Spirit to the Corinthian church that was full of lawsuits, immoral living, some of their theology was dodgy, some of them even began to doubt the resurrection of Jesus. We confuse those spiritual gifts with the fruit of the Spirit, which is a much more long-term process as the Holy Spirit gets to grips with us over the years. And we are given the gifts of peace and patience and joy and long-suffering and all those other gorgeous fruit of the Spirit that Paul outlines elsewhere. So we see sometimes younger Christians, I don't mean in age, but I mean newer Christians, going OTT, with spiritual gifts and so therefore we we create a hurdle in our mind and we say oh that's awful that's so excessive I'm not going anywhere near there and so we deny the giver of these wonderful gifts who gives them so that the church may be strong in her mission and I think one of our other difficulties is that we sometimes react badly in what's supposedly a, a rational age although there's not a lot of rationality about at the minute in terms of some of the journalism and some of the hype that's out there. But if we deny the existence of these gifts simply because they are supernatural and inexplicable humanly, then really we'd have to throw everything out. The resurrection is supernatural. You can't pick and choose the whole of our existence as followers of Jesus having experienced new life the reawakening of our hearts is something completely supernatural. Now you'll gather by now that I'm fairly clear cut on this. You may have a different perspective, but all I'd ask you is please hear me out. 
My motivation this morning is not to cause difficulties or trouble for you, but to point to you the motivation in Paul's heart as he wrote to this church that was struggling to make sense of its missional purpose. You here are here for one purpose, and that is to make Christ known to your friends, your neighbours, your work colleagues, your fellow students. That's it. That is the only reason the church exists. It's to rescue men and women, boys and girls, who otherwise would be having a desperate future without him. And God chooses, in his wisdom, to pour these amazing gifts out on a church. And we'll explore that a bit later on. So, where are we going today? First of all, we're going to look at Paul's motivation for his teaching. We're going to look at his concern for the church and the basis for that concern. Secondly, uh, we're going to look at the framework in which these gifts operate, namely lives that are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to briefly consider the gifts themselves. It's far too much to uh, do justice this morning to each of the gifts, but I will pause for a minute or so on each gift just to, just to remind us of what that entails. And then we'll consider, fourthly, the place of the Lord himself, who is the distributor and giver of the gifts to us all. And then finally, I'll ask us to reflect on our personal reaction and our corporate reaction. So can I invite you, very courteously, if you disagree with me, can you leave that till part five, okay? Because there'll be a chance to reflect then. Just, just hear me out on the first four points, all right? Because, say, I've got no axe to grind other than to bring you the word. Let's look at Paul's motivation, first of all. Uh, this is beautifully put in the Barclay translation. It reads this. In verse one, um, it's, I don't want to leave you in the dark about spiritual gifts. And the New Living Translation reads this. For I must correct your misunderstanding about the gifts. He doesn't want them left in the dark because he knows that these gifts are pivotal to a church being successful in mission and outreach. Now the basis for that concern he comes to in verse 7 because he explains in verse 7 why these gifts are given to us. He says it's for the common good. It's for the common good. It's not for our own growth or spiritual nourishment, nor is it so that FBC becomes a place where people come and do spiritual gymnastics and the lights metaphorically light up and there's fireworks. Now, God may choose to do that. He may choose to do that. It's given for the common good. So we may experience a benefit and a sense of blessing, but only in as much as our operating in those gifts is for the common good. Now I think there's justification, which you'll see later on in the sermon, that the common good doesn't limit itself, that phrase, to just the Christian community. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul speaks very specifically that the gifts are given for the strengthening of the church. 
if you look at Jesus' own ministry, his supernatural healing, if you look at some of the uh, healings and the raisings from the dead that the apostles performed, for example in Acts 9, and you look at the raising of little girl Tabitha, um, they were for the common good. They were to bless people outside. And we'll, we'll think about why miracles are given in a moment. But whether you want the big picture, the common good for the world at large, or whether you want to keep it to the church, the principles are the same. We have a responsibility then that we don't even have any thought of limiting these grace gifts, these charismata, because the Lord has chosen to bless his people with those gifts for the building up of the church, his bride. Come with me, if you will, on an imaginary journey. We're at a wedding reception, and uh, the eating's going on over that side. Not saying anything, you lot over here, but you look like you know how to. And, and this side is where they've, they've popped all the presents as they come in. And there's a stack of presents over that side. The gifts have been extraordinarily generous. And then somebody arbitrarily says, as the reception's going on to the bride and groom, uh, no, we, we, we think gifts are a bit passe, actually. We don't, we don't really do gifts these days. And so the picture I'm trying to make is this, that the bride of Christ, the church, in some places has basically been told, forget the gifts, we don't do gifts. Now, as that is unreasonable in a wedding scenario and outrageous, I also suggest it's, it's pretty unreasonable, pretty outrageous in a church setting as well. It's no longer, you see, about our preferences. It's about the degree to which we could even consider for a moment denying the common good, that we could consider for a moment not strengthening the church. Some of you are worried, some of you are cautious souls because you have a temperament that that's way, that way. And that's fine. It's fine to be cautious because we need cautious people like we need exuberant people. But if you're worried, go into Luke 11 and 11. And Jesus there talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what I'm saying is, I appreciate your concern, some of you. You may think, oh boy, if we get gifts operating in the church here, the church is going to go completely crackers. It's going to you know, fall off a cliff. No, it won't, because actually Jesus is in charge. And uh, Jesus is not going to give you duff stuff. The Lord is not going to give us something bad. That's because we're under the protection of the Lordship of Jesus, which gets me to my second point. The framework uh, in which these gifts operate is simply this, the Lordship of Christ, your life individually under the Lordship of Jesus, my life under the Lordship of Jesus, our life together under the Lordship of Jesus. And there's an acid test, isn't there? 1 John 4.2 says this. This is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the, f in the flesh is from God. And that's very similar to what we find in those first few verses of chapter 12 here today. 
There is also another way that I think we are helped in our exercise of the gifting, and that's by uh, applying the principle of submittedness. You'll know that in Ephesians 5 and verse 21, we're told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if we're operating in a submitted environment, we won't mind being corrected if we do a bit of a loopy-loo on giftings occasionally. Do you know what I mean? Someone who always thinks they've got a word to bring. Or so, uh, and sometimes they're spot on and sometimes you know it was that cheese sandwich they had just before they came out. And actually that's where leadership and submittedness comes in. That actually we can take gentle rebuke and correction. Uh, or it might be that we use spiritual gifts, we slightly abuse them because we're always, we're always trying to get our angle across. And so the words that come from the Lord come from our own prejudices. And, and if, we, if we live together as a community, if you live together as a community of church, uh, and you listen to each other, and you're willing to submit to each other, that's not hierarchical, that's, that's about every bit of the body submitting to itself. That is a safeguard that presents and prevents, um, prevents the excesses that can then take place on occasions. Now, let's get on to some of the objections, because I know there might be some very reasonable objections sitting here, and I don't know. See, I haven't been primed by Andy on this. He hasn't said, he hasn't given me a checklist and said, oh, yeah, they're probably for it and they're probably against it. I just don't know. I might be speaking to a congregation that's completely relaxed about this, and you know more about prophecy and words and tongues and healings than I've managed to to come to myself, which is brilliant. So just, just bear with the poor boy. Some folk decide with no biblical backing that these things have discontinued for some reason. And the reason they do that is because they use this sort of argument. Um, I don't see many spiritual gifts operating today. Therefore, they obviously don't exist today. Now that's flawed logic. All that you can deduce from the fact you don't happen to see them much is that you don't happen to see them much. You can't deduce much more than that. It's unreasonable, it's, it's, a, it's a, an incoherent conclusion to say that because you don't see them, they don't exist. Nowhere at all in God's word does it indicate that these words um, of knowledge, these tongues, these gifts of healing have been discontinued or set aside. But I think our lack of experiencing them in the Western church largely, except sometimes we do see them a bit more, uh, that our lack of uh, experience in them has become the lens through which we interpret scriptures like this and we kind of rationalise and instead of coming face to face with scripture and saying well my, it must be my experience that's deficient rather than the word of God so are we normal or abnormal by New Testament standards 1 Corinthians 1 7 is pretty clear about this that we do not lack any spiritual gifts as we eagerly await for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't lack any spiritual gift, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, as we eagerly await the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as far as I'm concerned, we're still awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in that context. We don't lack any spiritual gift. Jesus hasn't secretly come yet. There is going to be a day he's going to come and it's going to be pretty categoric that he's come and then we won't need the gifts anymore. But until that day, we do. Some people also argue this and it's a, it's a very 
plausible argument until you start to prod into it. They say, well, we're now in that lovely state where the perfect has come because we've been given the New Testament. And of course, these letters were written to a church that was kind of very embryonic. There, there was no canon of scripture. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't have the New Testament. And so we've got the New Testament. And on that basis, we've actually got all the revelation we ever need. Excuse me, I'm, I'm not quite sure that stacks up. Because uh, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, says 1 Corinthians 13.10. And if we're honestly arguing that, then 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says... Uh, we know fully and are fully known. That, that's, a, that's a state in the future. We're going to be fully known at some point in the future. Until then, the gifts are operating in the church. And in a sense, it, it puts us horribly in a position of superiority above the apostles and the disciples. If Christ chose to clothe the disciples and the apostles with the gifts of the Spirit, as they built the church and as they fulfilled the Great Commission then why would he exclude us from that? We are still broken, weak, feeble men and women seeking to make Christ known in the world. Other objections in include uh, people who read 2 Corinthians 12, 12 about the signs of the apostle and they link the signs of the apostle uh, with signs and wonders and mighty works. But for those of you who are grammar geeks here, if you look into the Greek text of this, you cannot say that the uh, signs, wonders, and mighty works were the sign of the apostles. They, they were done by apostles, but they weren't unique to it. If you want to know about that afterwards, I'll tell you. It's all to do with the dative and the nominative cases. But trust me on that. The Greek text does not limit those gifts to the apostles. Far from it. And then, the other crunch thing for me is in 1 Corinthians 12... What was, if, if these things weren't for people other than apostles, what was the Holy Spirit doing, pouring it out on the church in Corinth? Was, it, was the Holy Spirit making some ghastly mistake? No, because the Holy Spirit is God, all wise and all knowing. And of course, we look in 1 Corinthians 14, 6, and we read this. It's clear, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The Holy Spirit is poured out on a congregation to make it strong in its life of work and witness. Now, do you remember in Acts 6, um, Stephen was chosen when the disciples realised they were a little bit um, stretched, shall we say. And so they appointed seven others to help with the work of apostleship. And Stephen was chosen on the basis that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He wasn't an apostle. And we're told in Acts 6-7, the word of God spread, the number of disciples increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, a man full of grace and power, went and did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen was not one of the original apostles, and yet he was gifted with these gifts. Now, in a moment, we're on the home straight now. We're over halfway, you'll be relieved to hear. We're just going to consider very briefly a consideration of these gifts and what they might mean for us today. 
I'm just going to build in a 30 second pause now so that we can just pray quietly. I'm not going to lead you in prayer. We're just going to sit for 30 seconds and just digest where we've got to at the minute. Okay, let's think about some of the gifts in a practical sense now. What do they mean? Um, and this list here in 1 Corinthians 12 isn't exclusive. There are, there are other gifts mentioned later on, administration, teaching, hospitality. Um, but it's very clear that the, the, the giver of these gifts is, is always the Holy Spirit. So what about wisdom? I'm going to leave you with one small definition. Wisdom is knowledge applied in the right measure, at the right time, in the right setting, in the right attitude and style. Knowledge applied in the right measure at the right time, in the right setting, in the right attitude and style. Words of knowledge, I expect some of you have had experience of this, where you get a hunch from God, it breaks into someone's situation. And it's most marvelous when someone brings a word of knowledge because you think, well, it must only be the Lord that knows that. It releases us, it releases people, softens people up for evangelism. I just encourage you in these days, text people with a word of knowledge to encourage them. You know, we don't have to deliver it face to face. We can text it. Why not? Let's use the technology. Healings. I'm going to tell you two stories of healings that I've seen. I might have told you the first one before. When I was at college, a long time ago, I had a bloke called Andy, and he had a friend, an older man, who was suffering from a blood disorder. And he was very concerned about this guy. He was basically dying. And he rang me up. By then I'd left college and I was working down in Plymouth. And uh, he rang me up. Anyway, long story short, we decided that we would get a group of people down in Devon at a given time praying. And Andy, with his friend up in Kent, would sit and just hold silence. And as we, um, as we uh, prayed, we just felt, yeah, we're just doing what God's calling us to do. It was pre-mobile phone, so I had to use a pay phone. And I rang Andy afterwards, and about a couple of hours later, and I said, how did it go? And he said, it was most remarkable. He said, uh, we were sat there, and this bloke just felt an incredible heat, and he felt something happening inside him. Didn't know what it was, but he said, I'll keep you posted. Anyway, about 10 days later, he gave me a call back, and he said this bloke had been to the doctor, and he was completely clear. Of, so, you know, that, that is a fact. I, I bear witness to that. I also bear witness to a young man called Joseph. He's now... Is he 13, 14? Uh, 13. He had a thing called glue ear, and he, he was going to need a grommet for it. And he was about eight or nine at the time. And his parents shared the need for prayer. Um, on that occasion, we, we used a principle that the apostles did use on occasion. They used a bit of cloth. In fact, in this occasion, it was a, it was a hanky. And we simply prayed over the hanky that that just might be a token of God's presence. And we suggested to his parents they placed it under the pillow for a week um, and they placed it under the pillow for a week they were believing folk they were praying that the Lord would continue to heal Joseph um, and within uh, a fortnight he'd gone back to the doctor 
Uh, his ear was fine and he's got no hearing problems at all now and that's kind of four or five years later these are just very ordinary things where the Lord, he longs to touch people he longs to touch people miraculous powers why does God use miraculous powers? I think there's two main reasons and there are probably more first of all, it's to bring people to salvation Uh, it's a means of calling people to repentance Do do you remember Jesus uh, the miraculous catch of fish in, in Luke 5 8. Uh, Peter fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away, I'm a sinful man. Miracles drive people to repentance. Um, there's another subset, it's a means of evangelism itself. In Acts 8 16, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs they did, they paid close attention to what he did and what he said. So they see the miracle, they stop, and they listen to the gospel. In Acts 9.35, uh, Peter raises the paralytic, the paralysed Aeneas. Now all who saw Aeneas afterwards turned to the Lord. So it's actually a means of evangelism. There's no suggestion anywhere in the Bible that these gifts were given just to kickstart the church, that somehow we're superior now, that by effective preaching and ministry and great worship, we're going to uh, be effective in mission. And of course, Acts 9.42, I referred to earlier, referred to the raising of the little girl Tabitha. These all have a reaction. They have a reaction of people responding to God. And thirdly, within this sort of bringing people to salvation category, I would say it's a means of authenticating Jesus. And why do I say that? Look at John 14 and verse 11, uh, when Jesus says, Believe me when I say I'm in the Father, or at least believe on the evidence of my miracles. And of course, after Lazarus was raised from the dead in John 12 and verse 11, we read this. It's very easy to miss this when you go through. So after Lazarus is raised from the dead, many of the Jews went over to Jesus and put their trust in him. God moves miraculously. And that's what you may need to see here. You may need to step out in faith to pray God for a miracle that touches a family in this community. And as a result of that, you just don't know, tens, dozens of people may come to faith. The second reason I think God uses miraculous powers is, is what we call pedagogical. It's, it's to make a point. They're signs. It's a bit like it's a bit like a signpost in the village down here. It probably says Isle Abbots, you know, two miles. The sign itself is not Isle Abbots, but it says if you keep going that way, you'll get to Isle Abbots. And, and that's what I think sometimes the signs are used for. They're to point us towards a greater reality, which is God himself. Think of Jesus turning water into wine. He's talking about the ordinary becoming extraordinary. Uh, when Jesus curses the, uh, the fig tree and it withers, he's showing the power of prayer. Okay, prophecy. I said we're going to whistle through these gifts today. Prophecy. Forthtelling and foretelling. Sometimes it's just proclaiming powerfully uh, the word of God. Uh, but sometimes it's foretelling. It's actually speaking something about the future. I'm going to tell you a story that I've heard uh, from, uh, through Phil Moore. He's, he's the leader of a New Frontiers church in Wimbledon. And he tells a story of a 17-year-old member of his congregation 
who um, was in a conversation at college with a Muslim girl. She's a very strict Muslim, quite argy-bargy Muslim, very devout and very antagonistic about Christian things. And this 17-year-old lad felt, he felt he had a word from God for her. So he said to her, look, I know this sounds stupid, but I believe I've got something from the God for you. Do you want me to tell you what it is? So this 17-year-old lad starts telling her things about her life, and the girl breaks down. As a result of that, she starts going along to church, and as a result of that, uh, she gets introduced to someone else who was a Muslim who's come to faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know the upshot. I don't know whether she's yet a Christian. Uh, but that's the sort of reason why gifts and miracles are used and why prophecy is used. Distinguishing and discerning of spirits, very light this morning. Sometimes things ain't quite right. People get themselves messed up in all sorts of things, occult activity, tarot cards. And actually, uh, as we pray for people, we need to help them be released in Jesus' name from the effects of such involvement. Speaking in tongues, this is a good one. I expect some of you do and some of you don't. And you don't all have to, but you all may, because you can seek the gift. We're given a heavenly language. I don't buy into the argument that says it was just a sort of language just so that the early apostles, who were simple boys, couldn't learn foreign languages. Um, you know, that, that takes a bit of stretching the point, I think. I mean, you know, for goodness sake, they were pretty erudite. I mean, Luke was a doctor, and they, you know, they aren't daft, for goodness sake. And... Uh, but uh, gift of tongues, heavenly language, help us in our prayer life. And then we have this one amazing thing sometimes where we're given a tongue in a public setting of worship and somebody else will know the anointing to actually give the interpretation. What a blessing when you gather together as God's people to hear from heaven itself. Um, I think sometimes we pray, we pray chicken in church sometimes because I bet, I bet if I'm, I'm not a betting man, but I bet. If I, if I asked you secretly, and I promise never to tell anybody, some of you would actually say, well, I, I think actually once I, I did, or actually several times, I think I did have a tongue, but I, I don't know, the moment passed and I never gave it. And there'll be someone else who will say to me, do you know, I really felt someone was going to give a tongue because I really felt God had given me an interpretation. What we do in church, it's no different to the rest of life. We play chicken, you know? It's, it's a bit like that kid's thing. We play chicken, we, we wait or blink we wait and see if someone else blinks first actually sometimes it's going to be you that has to blink first it's going to be you that has to respond to the Holy Spirit's nudge and to go out on an arm and leg and risk looking stupid in front of your fellow believers here but you're going to be the source of great blessing when that happens so all these gifts work of one and the same spirit the fourth thing very briefly we mustn't forget that it's the Lord who gives these gifts. It's him who gives them. We can seek them, he gives them. And finally, as we move towards a close, what's our reaction individually and corporately? Are you and I straining for the common good and the strengthening of the church? Uh, Jesus himself said, it's good for you that I'm going away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit, the counsellor, won't come. Now, practicalities. You may feel awkward. You may feel embarrassed. You may feel you might rip the church in half. You may feel that Simon's really shredded your logic this morning, in which case I crave your forgiveness. But like in sport, sporting heroes succeed because they practice. 
Spiritual gifting is very similar. We have to step out of faith, we have to practice. I see healings less than half the time I pray for healings, but I still pray for them. I pray for the dead to be raised twice and I haven't seen it happen, but it does happen in certain parts of the world. I'm still waiting. I may never see it, but I'm, I'm expectant that I will. And finally, if you feel weak or listless as a church, and I don't know if you do, maybe, just maybe, it's because you've ignored intentionally or unintentionally God's provision of power to accompany your proclamation of the salvation offered through Jesus. The enemy must be thrilled when he sees us arguing and reasoning our way away from using these gifts. Paul is here sharing the secret of building churches for mission. Let's use them. Let's use them in an orderly way, but for goodness sake, let's use them. So where have we gone? We've looked at Paul's motivation for his writing. We've looked at the framework in which these gifts operate. We've looked at a consideration very, very briefly of the gifts themselves. We've considered the place of the Lord as the giver of these gifts. But we are urged in Scripture to seek them, to desire them, and finally our reaction together. These gifts have got nothing to do with holiness, but as I say, more of a desire to use them. They're given to a weak, needy church by our kind, wise, and loving Heavenly Father, because he knows we need them to be effective in our outreach. And practically, I guess, it means building in sufficient time and space in your lives individually and together, at work, at home, at college, when you gather in small groups, when you gather corporately to worship, to expect the Lord to dish out the gifts. I'm going to use a closing illustration, two closing illustrations, ones I prepared and one Andy handed me on a plate this morning. Doesn't know what it is, he's worried now. Don't worry, I won't, I'll embarrass you, but it won't be bad. And um, it's a bit like a church that decides to go and evangelise without the gifts of the Holy Spirit is a bit like a rower who decides to go out on a boat with no oars. That's true. The other one that you'll really like, a church that decides to go without the gifts of the Spirit in their mission is a bit like a pastor who turns up to church with no belt on in the morning because as the service goes on he's going to have to put his hands in his pockets and especially if he's preaching he's going to have to hitch his trues oops it looks a bit daft it is a bit daft and it's unnecessary the Lord's given everything you need everything I need um, to help us be effective